Hello, this is Brian Bullington, and I am pastor of New Song Family Church in Ventuk, Namibia. I'm so glad that you have joined us today, and it's my prayer that this podcast message will help you to grow closer to Jesus as you walk daily with Him. The armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, Words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I I am and what I am doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time. Uh, Despite the many changes in our life, which this morning apparently includes fire hazards, um, Lord, and fire hydrants, we thank you that you are constant, that your word is constant, and that you want to speak to us through your spirit even now. So we pray that you may open our hearts, that we may have ears that are attentive and minds that are willing to learn. Speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. uh, When I was preparing for this text, I, I had to smile. Firstly, it made me smile because when I realized that I was preaching on Ephesians 6, chapter 10, it made me realize that I didn't have to preach on Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 and following on the submission of wives and husbands. As, a, as an unmarried male, I figure I leave that up to the professionals. But after I prepared this manuscript, I had a second reason to smile. Because it was only yesterday afternoon that I watched Sibylla's sermon, and I realized that she had started her sermon from last week in exactly the same way, with gratefulness that she didn't have to preach on Ephesians 5, 21 and following. So Brian and Dana, if you're watching this right now, I, I think we speak collectively here. I can speak for all of us that we're incredibly grateful that you're taking on that task for us. But with all that smiling, unfortunately, we, we now come to a part where we can't smile because, because this text isn't a smiling matter. It's a text about war. War in the Christian life. Most of us, thankfully, have not been to war, but I think we've seen enough movies to know what war is like, to at least get a picture of it, to see how brutal it is, how it's unrelenting. And it's unrelenting irrespective of whether you're ready for it or not. 
And it's to war that Ephesians chapter 6 is calling us. Initially, I was planning on, uh, you might have guessed it, preaching three points from this passage. But then I quickly realized I wouldn't be able to divide the text quite as neatly as that. So we only have two points this morning, to, to everyone's dismay. But we have several subpoints, and, and I hope all of them ultimately make the main point, which is found in verse 11. Stand in the Lord's power. And we're going to do that. We're going to get to that main point by looking at the armor of God first, and then we're going to look at the enemy that we're facing, Satan himself. So with at least the sliver of a roadmap in place for this morning's sermon, buckle up as we go to war together. And we do so under the first heading of gird up for war so you may stand. Catchy, isn't it? At this point, however, we have to actually take a step back. We have to, we have to realize that we're reading the end of Ephesians. There's a lot that happened before that, and it influences what Paul is trying to teach us here. So in the words of John Stott, and I quote, We have had several times in our study of this letter to marvel at the breadth of Paul's horizon. He began by unfolding God's purpose, conceived in past eternity before the foundation of the world, to create a single new human race through the death and resurrection of Christ, and ultimately to unite the whole church and the whole creation under Christ's headship. So these incredible truths of God were what we were looking at in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and they are exactly what moves Paul to appeal to God's people to live like the children of God that they are in, verse, in chapters 4 and 5 as God's new and reconciled society. So really what Paul has done up till now is he's provided us with an idealized uh, scenario, an idealized picture of what the Christian life ought to look like. And in doing so, well, he's revealed to us just how far removed we are from that. But I think the beauty of Ephesians 6 is that Paul is aware of this. He knows that all is not as it should be. And he, uh, with both feet firmly planted on the ground, points us to the cause of disparity, to the problem, and how we can overcome it. And we know that the problem is that we're at war. We're at war with Satan, and at the risk of sounding dramatic, as long as you draw breath, you cannot escape from that war. You might not have known about this before today, but if you submit to Christ as Lord, then you're automatically at war with his enemy. Christianity is not the religion of ultimate tranquility always here and now. Maybe for you, unfortunately, this morning, it's not the reprieve from all struggles in life that you're looking for. Instead, it's the religion and the relationship that offers peace now, right here, but in the midst of our struggle. And I think that's what this passage is talking about. It calls us to resist evil. And it calls us to resist evil by putting on the armor of God. We've, we've watched the video and, and we've just read it, but it's described in verses 14 through 17. It lists the belt of truth which is buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness. It speaks of the feet that should be fitted with the readiness or the alertness of the gospel of peace. It speaks of the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, the helmet of salvation. And it speaks of the sword of the spirit, uh, which is the word of God. 
Now, we could spend a six-week sermon series on these passages, on, on these verses, and, and we probably wouldn't be able to plumb all the depths of what these words are, are trying to teach us. But we don't have six weeks. We only have a couple of minutes. So instead, I will present to you a couple of points of caution, one or two points on the grammar on this, of this passage. You've been thirsting for that, haven't you? And, and finally, one or two points of application before we move on to the enemy that we're facing. So points of caution. And, and I'll just mention this. I'll try to be brief. Even though much may be said of each piece of the armor, I just want to caution us about letting our imagination run free here, run wild, and make arbitrary judgment calls about certain connections or things that we see here in the armor. Now, what do I mean? I mean this. A reference to the breastplate of righteousness, if you let your imagination run freely, can very quickly turn to an interpretation of, wow, it covers my front and covers my heart. So the meaning of this passage must really be, I must guard my heart because that's the righteousness of God. And, and you can go on and on. We also always need to be standing facing the enemy because if we turn around, we'll be shot in the back into our unexposed because that's where the front or the breastplate doesn't cover us. Now, I'm not even saying that those interpretations are necessarily wrong, and they do make for riveting sermon illustrations. But ultimately, I would suggest to you that they lie in the realm of speculation. For instance, one thing I always wonder is, why is the heart so often brought into connection with the breastplate of righteousness? What if I want to talk about the kidney and Rico about the liver? You know, what about the pancreas that we just heard? Why is it the heart? And, and friends, the, the kind of armor that Paul would have had in mind uh, was, so especially the breastplate, was one that covered the front, it covered the sides, it covered the back, and it would have had interlaced scales covering his, his back, his entire back. So really the protection in view here is one that's rather three-dimensional. It's not, not, not really one-dimensional. And so ultimately, I really just want to caution us about taking too many interpretive liberties, too many imaginations with with this text, stretching it in ways that Paul probably didn't intend. But that begs the question, what did Paul intend with this armor? What is the purpose of it? And I'll, I'll jump ahead a bit here, give you the answer, but I think it's to give us identity. I think the means for us to stand strong in everyday life is to be reminded of who we are again and again and again. But more on that in a moment. First, I want to turn to that second point of caution that I promised you, uh, to that of grammar and vocabulary. I, I'm expecting a certain buzz in the room right now, by the way, a certain excitement. But uh, hang in there, folks. I think this will be to your benefit. You see, it's difficult for the English, English language to convey what, what you find in the original. Namely, that each verb and each pronoun our verbs are doing words, and pronouns are words like you. Uh, all of those words in this text are in the plural. Now, if you just read the English, you wouldn't notice that. The English just has you, which could be in the singular or the plural, and the verbs take up, stand. Those could also be in the singular or the plural. But in the original, they're all in the plural. Paul is talking to a community here. To which you respond, Great. I mean, the letter is, is written to the Ephesian church, after all. Why is this significant? 
I think it's significant for the simple reason that I'm convinced that most of us, when we were to, if we read this passage at home alone, we would interpret it in the singular. I think we've been trained that way. We've been trained to apply passages only to ourselves. Our, our daily quiet time routines, good and well-intentioned as they are, I think they've sort of ingrained in us to look to ourselves as a source of strength to do what is required. And so we look to this activity as a singular activity. But the whole letter stands against that interpretation. What's the letter about again? It's about the reconciliation of man and God. It's the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles. It's the destruction of the wall of hostility being broken down. It's about household codes. In other words, it's about harmony between people. It's about living rightly and in, in a good manner in the church and outside the church. All of it is plural. Until I read this at home alone. Then suddenly, this passage is for the Lone Ranger, for the holy quiet timekeeper. Friends, lone soldiers are easily overwhelmed and overpowered. Instead, I think the picture here is really one of an army. It's an, of an army of Christians who are all standing side by side, helping each other to stand. However, I think, again, we need to take a step back because most of us are probably not quite accustomed to what it means to wear armor. So how do we put one on? And I've, I've already told you about this. I think the primary function of God's armor is not that we find a physical armor. It's not necessarily even that every morning we get up and we think, helmet of salvation, boop, 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 boop. yep, got everything. No, it's, it's to remind us of our identity, of who we are, and then as people of God for us to stand. And although we're called to do so individually, I'm convinced, I'm absolutely convinced that we're too weak to do so for the rest of our lives on our own. We're not just talking until next week, Sunday. We're talking of a lifetime here. And for that, we need each other. So what does that look like practically? Well, say you've been wronged. Say you've sinned. Um, but we live in a realistic world, so let's assume that at some point you've sinned as well. Uh, maybe you're the, you're the worker who's been laid off unfairly during this really difficult time. Maybe you're the spouse that's been taken for granted in the home recently. Maybe you're the student who's overworked, undervalued, and you feel close to burnout. But maybe you're also the person who sinned against somebody who has broken relationships, who harbors secret sins that others don't know about. Not because you necessarily want to do them, but because they help you escape for just a little while. What does the armor mean to you? Well, picture the cabinet of God's armor with me for a second. You reach in, metaphorically, of course, and you find the belt of truth. What does it do? Well, first of all, it reminds you to live truthfully. It reminds you to live without deception in all your relationships, whether that's here at church with your people at work or at the state and the tax form. You live truthfully. But also... You're reminded of the promises of the gospel, which are true for you even now, irrespective of how you feel. What sort of things am I talking about? I think Ephesians 1 and 2 tell us. In Ephesians, we find the following. 
God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. He has chosen you. He has predestined you to sonship. He has redeemed you. He has covered your sin. You were dead, but you are now alive. All of these truths are in the first couple of verses in Ephesians. And simply pondering these truths will let those, those dark clouds, those clouds that cover your life right now, seem just a little bit less oppressive. You reach into the cabinet again. And by now we're expecting great things, right? Um, but we're still reaching in metaphorically. I'm not asking you to, to do anything physically here. But you attempt to pull out the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. These remind you not only of the need to act rightly, but they also remind you that you've been clothed by God's righteousness. You have God's armor you have Christ's robes. Your filthy, blood-stained, sinful robes, they're his now. And you have new robes. But you see, the thing about breastplates and why the Old Testament so often speaks about armor bearers is that they're incredibly heavy. It's so hard to pull one out yourself. It's so hard to put it on. Which is why I think that most of us tend to, tend to leave it in the cabinet. We tend to not pull it out. And I'm, I'm convinced that those are the moments in your life where you'll be most attacked by the evil one. Few things in your life will be assaulted with more malice and more malevolence than your assurance in the gospel, than your assurance of righteousness, than your assurance of right standing with God. Instead, you'll be tempted to think, am I really saved? As a Christian, should I still be doing that? Surely I shouldn't still be struggling like that. If I was really, if I really knew Christ, surely I wouldn't have treated her like that. Do any of these thoughts sound familiar? Friends, not putting on the armor of righteousness and salvation has devastating effects. And the accuser knows that he can lame us here. He can bog us down completely at this point. So how do we avoid that from happening? You ask your brother or sister for help. You're not alone. You have a trusted Christian brother or sister who you can speak to honestly, who you can share your fears with, your insecurities, who you can confess your sin to. And then together, you start pulling out that breastplate. What does that mean? Well, you remind each other of what is true about the other person, that you are actually covered by righteousness, that if you confess your sins, you are forgiven, that you are cleansed. And that the helmet of salvation still fits and the breastplate of righteousness is still yours. You remind each other and in so doing, the peace of Christ returns. But friends, there are some items in the, in the cabinet that aren't just connected to you directly. And, and these we still have to pull out. One of them is the, is the readiness. Some, some, some translations speak of the slippers of the readiness of the gospel of peace. You have peace now with God, and that's wonderful, but it doesn't end there. Instead, you, you move on. The gospel makes you ready to share the gospel with others, but also what's in view here is just to do good to everyone who's around you, to, good, to do good to everyone in your life. In view here is really an alertness to do good at all times, wherever you find yourself. There are two more items 
one of them is the shield of faith. The faith referred to here, I tend to think, I, I think the grammar again agrees, most, is most likely actually not our faith. It's not how strong my, my arm is in keeping up that shield. It's actually the faithfulness of God himself. So we're not only alone, not alone on the horizontal plane, we're not alone on the vertical plane either. God himself is faithful and he will not leave us in this battle. And finally, you draw the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Again, I've heard many interpretations of what it means for us to have a sword. Um, and again, I turn to grammar. You can ask me about that later. I know you'll be intrigued. But I think verses 17 and 18, the grammar just connects completely the shield of uh, sorry, the sword of the Spirit and the helmet of righteousness, or the helmet of salvation, rather, with prayer. The sword is to be used for prayer. So you pray. Pray in all things. Pray for everyone. Pray about everything. You pray for your situation at work. You pray for your college. You pray for those broken relationships that you're in, even in your home. One very wise lady from this church once said, when I want my husband to change, I don't speak to him. I speak to his boss. And the boss does the work because he's father and he's Lord. And he knows what's going on. He cares. And he will bring about the reconciliation. He'll bring about the change that you need. But also know that timing is in his hands. It's not your lot to worry about timing. That's up to him. It's your lot to pray. Do you see how this works? I've, I've just taken you through a, a sort of stylized example of what this could look like. But the, at, the end of this, at the end of this process, if you actually sit down and you just picture these things, and you have a brother or sister that you're talking to, I'm convinced that you'll be at peace again. You'll be at peace. The peace of God himself will be restored. And you'll be able to do good works for the church and for those around. How does that saying go, clothes maketh the man, clothes maketh the person? We've got a full set here. Why not put it on? And if you're too weak to do so alone, that's okay. You've got a whole church here. And hopefully you'll be ready to help those around you as well. We've looked at the armor, brief as it was, and we've put it on. So now it's time to consider who we're fighting against with that armor, who we're resisting. And I think scripture is quite clear. We're resisting Satan himself. I promised you a section on demons, and, and here we are. Uh, so whether you, whether you scoff at the mere mention of demons, of Satan, because you, you write that off as a fairy tale, or if you're fascinated by the topic and you have an unhealthy fixation on them, this topic really mesmerizes people the world over which is why I included this in the second half of the sermon. So if you've had a good snooze, if you've had a bit of a Sunday nap, now's the time to, to wake up and to, to be part of this again. Welcome back. It's good to have you. I think demons and satans are really worthy of our consideration. But I want to frame our discussion uh, right off the bat with the reminder that Satan is a defeated foe. Through the cross and resurrection, Christ has defeated the powers of darkness. And though they may rule on this earth yet, and we, we don't fully understand how that works, but, but the picture really is one of, 
of a lion in a cage. The lion is still fearsome and he's ferocious. And mercy to the one who sticks her hands between the bars. But he's, he's in a cage. He might still have teeth, he's still alive, but his activity is strictly limited by God himself. And that won't change until Christ returns. He's thrown away the proverbial keys, and when he returns, he will end all evil altogether. What a glorious day that will be when we'll no longer be at war. But until then, verses 11 through 13 make us aware that we are at war. We're at war against spiritual powers, powers that seek to disrupt life the way that God intended it. Now, in recent years, maybe in the last 50 or 60 years or so, uh, which, which sounds like a really long time, but if you consider all the time that's passed before that where people were looking at this passage, it's really short. In those recent years, people have started interpreting these verses not as actual demonic entities, not as, not as actual spiritual beings, but, but they've started seeing them as re references to, to economic and social powers on this earth, to political forces. In other words, they contest that the principalities and powers that this passage refers to, the powers of the heavenly realms, are, are actually man-made institutions. There are laws and social structures that we need to stand against. So it's the, it's the oppressive social system, it's the wealthy elite, it's the, it's the morally bankrupt justice and criminal system that we need to rise against, or, or so the interpretation goes. But is that what Paul is speaking about here in Ephesians? Friends, in our, in our crazy world right now, much, much could be said about this point, but I'll, I'll try to restrict myself to three points at this point, three remarks. And the first remark is, is purely exegetical. In other words, it comes from the text. I think, or I would suggest it to you that the text is actually painfully clear at this point. It's actually referring to spiritual beings. It's referring to demonic entities. And how do I think so? Well, I think so because in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, it mentions, it mentions Satan specifically. And then in verse 12, it continues. It says, with spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. All previous references of the words spiritual and heavenly have been in connection with Christ and the Holy Spirit and maybe with us joining that. And we understood those literally, didn't we? But somehow here, people start interpreting these words figuratively, which if you do so, well, that's up to you, but then you have to go back and reinterpret who Christ is and who the Holy Spirit is. So I suggested to you that the most natural reading of this passage is to simply accept, even if you disagree or you don't like it, but this is speaking about demonic entities, about actual Satans. Second, just because we understand this as actual demonic entities, that by no means implies that they can't affect institutions or systems. If they can affect people, they can affect systems. Turn on the news and you'll discover that to this day, institutionalized injustice has been rampant everywhere, whether it's the first world or here at home. Do demons have a role to play in that? It seems likely. In a fallen world of sinful human beings, all manner of evil is bound to be concocted in any human institution. And that's precisely what I want to draw your attention to this morning. Evil 
according to the Bible, is complex, as are its solutions. I'll say it again. Evil, according to the Bible, is complex, as are its solutions. Secular worldviews, and, and that includes African worldviews, tend to be, just by nature, reductionistic. You maybe have never heard that word, but basically what it means is it reduces it. It brings it down to one thing that we can point our finger at. And who wouldn't want that? Of course we all want to know why my life sucks right now. If only I could point my finger at... That's what we want to know, isn't it? And secular worldviews do exactly that. In Africa, we're no stranger to pointing our finger at spiritual beings. We see sinful, or we see sinful behavior as, as simply a symptom. The root of it is that we've been bewitched, that there's a witch doctor behind this. If evil spiritual forces are at work, and we can explain everything through that paradigm. And that's why sometimes I wonder if that glib saying, I don't know if you've heard it before, but you know, when in doubt, cast it out. I, I wonder if that didn't come from an African, you know, when it was first when it was first spoken, although now it's on an American book. So in Africa, we, we point at the spiritual, but, but the world has more worldviews than that. And, and if I can just generalize here a little bit, uh, th there are other worldviews. And, and the progressive left tends to stress the structural reality of evil and the corporate nature of, of guilt, the corporate nature of responsibility. Whereas the conservative right tends to emphasize personal failure and denies corporate reality entirely. Now, with humility, it's, it's my conviction that all three of these worldviews, at the end of the day, fail to answer evil satisfactorily. I think they're all simplistic. They're all simplistic attempts to understand something that is actually incredibly complex. Again, I fully understand the desire to discover the root of evil or the cause of the suffering in our lives. And I don't think that's only human. I think that's, in fact, biblical. Why do I say that? Well, Christ knew about sin, and what did he do? He came to fix it. So it's okay for us to, to seek out problems, or not to, to seek them out, but to find the roots of these problems, to find the causes but I really want to urge us all, to, I just want to caution us against simplistic solutions to complex problems. Note again what it says in verse 11 about Satan. What does it say about him? It says, Satan's schemes. He is crafty and he is devious. And any simple answers to evil will ultimately, they'll invariably fall short of recognizing the versatility of evil that's at work in our lives. And I think that these worldviews that are reductionistic, that bring it down to only one point, they will ultimately allow evil to thrive in those facets that they didn't explore, even if their agenda is to fix all problems. Now, maybe an illustration will help. This is all very abstract, and thank you for hanging in there. Um, during World War II, some British politicians riled up their troops with the following statement, or with the following slogan. And, and this one came quite close to me, um, close to my heart. It said, the only good German is a dead German. Let that sink in for a little bit. 
the only good German is a dead German. What did they mean? Well, they meant that Hitler was seen, th was seen through the same lens as, as the German cook in a German village somewhere at a hotel, and was seen through the same lens as the 16-year-old boy soldier who was taken out of the classroom, given a rifle, pointed into the right direction and told, attack. Evil is attributed equally to each three of these. They're equally demonized. And the only thing they have in common is that they're German. Is that fair? Is it fair to put Hitler or to, to put the blame of the Holocaust where millions of people died equally on Hitler, the German cook, and the boy soldier? I'll, I'll let your moral compass decide this one. But I'm really hoping it's, it's pointing at an emphatic no. And yet, surely there were many Germans who were, who were aware of the, of the evils, of the horrors of, of Second World War Germany, weren't they? Why didn't they resist? Why didn't more stand up and say no? Closer to him, why didn't the churches resist? Why wasn't there a unanimous outcry from the churches saying, no? Surely, they bear some of the responsibility, or have to carry some of the responsibility, if not as enablers, then at the very least as quiet bystanders, don't they? Do you see the complexity? Do you see the complexity of real evil in a real world? This is, these are two examples from one people group. And we have examples much closer to home. Assigning blame or guilt only at the corporate level, only at the spiritual level, or only at the individual level, fails to actually do justice to any of them. And so I'm convinced, or, or what, I, what I argue for is that as Christians, we need to, it's absolutely vital that we have a sustainable way of dealing with evil that goes beyond uh, canceling everything and everyone that we disagree with or sticking our heads into the sand hoping it'll go away by itself. And this brings me to the third remark. Thank you for sticking with me and not stoning me yet. These are, these are big topics in our world right now. I think well, I would suggest it to you that Ephesians 6 provides us with a paradigm it's not the, the answer, but it's a start to a paradigm of how we can stand against evil in a way that is faithful to Christian witness. Consider the armor again with me. The belt and the breastplate, breastplate, breastplate they exhort us to what? To live truthfully and importantly, to do right by each other. Combine that with the alertness that we ought to have in the gospel to do all sorts of good works, well then I'm convinced that Christians, Christians really ought to be the kind of people who are at the forefront all the time, engaging society, standing up for those who are defenseless, and standing against those who are abusing their power. And I think at our time, here in Vintuk, that means standing up for the poor, and the Bible is filled with passages that refer to the poor and how we ought to act for them. So stand up for the poor, but also stand against any forms of racism and other abuses of power, such as corruption.
The honest truth, though, is that we, that we haven't often gotten that right, have we? I haven't often gotten that right. And this text confronted that in me. But it showed me another thing which is different about biblical justice to these other worldviews that I was just discussing. Namely that with Christ there is always a second chance. With these other things, there might be a second chance or there might not. You, you might not even live to find out. But here with Christ, there is a second chance. There is forgiveness and we can resolve to do better. So recognizing my failure, perhaps recognizing our failure, we have another chance to stand up for our weaker brothers and sisters. And as we do so, for instance, the helmet of salvation, it reminds us that we didn't deserve the Savior's kindness in the first place. So we don't stand up to annihilate other people. That's what the world does. We, we don't, we're not for that. Because the person at the other end is a person made in the image of God, just like you and me. They're not some nameless, faceless evil that we can just annihilate. No. They're a person that Jesus Christ thought it was worthwhile dying for. And so this, the helmet of salvation reminds us who we are and who the person on the other end is. So really, the, the picture is one of wherever you are in life right now, you have opportunities to do good to the people around you. What, what does it mean for you in your life to stand for the poor and against racism and other power corruptions or, or corruptions of power? Think hard on this, friends. Think hard on this. Your life and mine, just, just by virtue of the armor that we're wearing, should be characterized by these sorts of works. And it might be as easy as inviting somebody to your home to have a meal with you. Somebody who can never repay you. And having a conversation with that person. Radical, generous giving and humble listening will be invaluable in our toolkit from this day on. And if you want to go on the offensive, if you really want to do some damage, well, the primary weapon given to you is that of prayer. I know, I know that doesn't sound like what you want to hear, but it's what the text says. Again, the human on the other end is a person. If Christ thought it was worthwhile dying for, it was, if, if Christ thought it's worthwhile being crucified for, drinking the cup of wrath of God himself, then surely the person on the other end of your hatred is worth two minutes of your praying time. Isn't he? Isn't she? As a Christian, we have a responsibility to pray. So this text then really isn't passive. It doesn't cause us to roll over and just sort of accept all the woes of life. It's the opposite. It calls us to be firm. It calls us to get up and to stand firm together, to stand for each other and with each other in all the struggles of life that we face. And there are manifold. What I struggle, you might not be going through but we can help each other. But I also think, and this is also important to keep in mind, guys, I think it's important that this passage reminds us, or it, or it protects us really from any false sense of triumphalism. The lion is still alive. He might be caged, but he's still alive. We will not achieve all goals of all justice, of all rightness, of all good here on this side of Christ's return. It's only when he returns that he will set all things right. 
and that he will finally defeat evil. May he hasten that day. But until then, until Christ returns, and it'll be glorious, let us stand strong in the Lord. Stand strong in the Lord. Friends, it's not a request. It's a command. Be encouraged that the command implies that God is eager and he's willing to give you all the strength that you need to stand for every day in his service. So put on that armor. Help each other. Put on that armor and stand together. And when you've done all you can to stand, then stand some more. May God guide, may God guide and strengthen us as we do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've really made a mess of it, haven't we? We have only one hope, and that is Jesus Christ and his return. And so we thank you that one day he will return. But we also thank you that until that point you haven't left us defenseless, you haven't left us just sort of at the mercy of what is evil around us. No, you've given us an armor and you want us to use it for the good of each other. So help us share the gospel. Help us stand with and for each other. Help us to stand for the poor and to stand against racism, racism in all its forms that we find in our daily lives. Lord, would you preserve us? Would you preserve us from evil? Would you not give us over to temptation, but deliver us? And would you grant us righteousness even this day? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This is Rico Vecca, and I am also a pastor at New Song Family Church. I want to thank you for listening to this message today. And it is my hope that you will join us again for another New Song Family Church podcast.